Have you ever felt like the world around you is getting older and you're staying the same? Hmm? I don't know about you, but I, I locked in at about 35 and think that everybody else is changing and not me until I catch a glimpse of myself in, um, in some department store mirror and think, who is that old guy? I don't know how that is with you, but it does seem that way. A woman was uh, sitting in the waiting room for her first appointment with a new dentist. I read uh, recently she noticed his diploma hanging on the wall and thought she recognized his name. She had remembered that a tall, dark-haired young man with the same name had been in her high school class, in fact, many years ago. She wondered, could it be that same guy I had a big crush on back in the 50s? Surely not. In fact, she quickly discarded the thought as this, this gray-haired, balding man came in to the examining room, and she kind of forgot about it. But after he examined her teeth, she went ahead and asked, did you, did you happen to attend Morgan Park High School? He said, well, yes, I did. She asked, well, when did you graduate? And he replied, 1957. She couldn't believe it. She said to him, you were in my class. Really? He looked at her closely and then added, what class did you teach? <laughs> Proof that you're getting old is you didn't think that was funny, huh? <laughs> I recently read online about a, the woman with the longest recorded lifespan. I don't believe uh, that it has been exceeded. They interviewed her at 120 years of age. In fact, I watched her interview. Jean Calment of Arles, France. This uh, remarkable woman became quite a, uh, quite a celebrity. In fact, uh, France's minister of health even attended her 120th birthday party. Uh, made quite a, quite a news splash. Medical science uh, information said, have researched her life. They've tried to, to discern habits in her life, to try and discover uh, secrets to her longevity. Not much help there, by the way. I found out she, she smoked uh, until she decided to quit at age 117. <laughs> She loved chocolate. Article said she ate about two pounds of chocolate candy a week. Well, there you go. I'm going to take that as my sign from the Lord. She did take vigorous walks. In fact, she rode her bicycle until age 100. A reporter at her birthday party asked her what kind of future she expected, and she replied, a very short one. (laughs) She would live to the age of 122. I believe that's the record. You know, with 77 million baby boomers approaching retirement, having arrived, many of them, the desire to slow down the aging process is, in fact, booming. The American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine reports the industry of supplements and home remedies and vitamins and medicines designed to prevent the decay of the body's organs, vitality, strength, etc. are now bringing in incredible revenue. This one article, the authors Arlene Weintraub, a senior writer for Business Week's Science and Technology, 
uh, section reported that in the year 2009, the amount spent by Americans on anti-aging products in 2009 alone is estimated will reach $79 billion. What's interesting to me is to discover that people who reach middle age and beyond aren't any more secure in their future. The oldest living man, I read a bit of his interview, a Japanese man who is now 112 years of age, said at the end of his interview to the reporter, and I quote, I just don't want to die. Even Jean Calment of France told reporters sometime before her death that she felt she had been forgotten by a good God. I'm afraid that at the heart of so much of what the human race does to live longer is motivated not with a desire to remain as healthy as possible to make a continued contribution to to family and friends and life and ministry and the glory of God and the advancement of of the gospel of Christ and, and, and the development of the church, but a sense of dread, a sense of fear about life after death. USA Today ran an article with the results of a 2007 survey among 50-year-olds and up. The survey revealed that 94% of these Americans said they believed, quote, in God. In fact, 82% said that they considered themselves religious or very religious. What I really found interesting in this article was that less than half of them believed heaven is an actual literal place, but instead is a state of being or mind. Maybe the connection between that belief and the $79 billion spent this year alone to stay young is either willful disbelief or ignorance of the record of Scripture. Life on earth according to God's word, is is a prelude of a life to come that will not end. In fact, this isn't even, our lives here, an opening chapter. You couldn't even call it that because it's not long enough. At best, it's an opening line. Really, just a word or two. And for the believer, the only part of your biography of everlasting life that has any sorrow or pain or difficulty or challenge or heartache is a word or two at the beginning, and the rest is incredible, unspeakable glory. The Apostle Peter wrote, In this you greatly rejoice, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 5-7. The hymn writer put it well. When he wrote, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. Peter wrote the testing Time will be turned into praise and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So let's turn to the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
and see this literally played out in the lives of millions of people who've died and gone to heaven, which happens to be, by the way, an actual, literal place. Revelation chapter 7, let's pick up where we left off with verse 9, where we read, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now immediately upon reading this particular text, your mind is racing with several questions. So let me ask and answer a few of them at the outset. First, where did this vast number of people come from? We'll look down at the middle of verse 14 where John is given a clear answer to that question, we read, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. That term, the great tribulation, was coined by Jesus Christ himself as he described that eschatological period of divine wrath in Matthew 24, verse 21. He used the phrase great tribulation to refer to the last half of what we know to be Daniel's prophetic 70th week. This is the final three and a half years of the tribulation period, the last half, when disaster and persecution and devastation rises to unprecedented levels of horror and trouble. To identify these people, by the way, as the saved of all time, or the saved church, would be to ignore the definitive vocabulary of John's own words. These are the ones, these particular ones, who have come out of the definite article. By the way, the authorized translation dropped it out. King James doesn't have it. Good thing to include the, in the original language, the great tribulation. This is not just great tribulation, which the church has suffered over the centuries. This is the great tribulation, an eschatological term for the last week of Daniel's prophetic vision. So here they come out of this period of time. In fact, the original language uses the present tense with this participle. It's translated in your English Bibles, verse 14. These are the ones who come out of. These are they, literally you could translate it, who are presently, continually, at this moment in time, coming out of the Great Tribulation. In other words, the early vision of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists we studied in our last session together who are preaching on earth, this is occurring simultaneously with that vision. Now believers, either through their preaching or some other gospel avenue, who've believed, who've died either in the devastations or as martyrs, they are now flooding, they're pouring into heaven. Imagine as John then is watching, the number of those in heaven is actually growing. Like people streaming through the gates of a football arena, a stadium. These people keep coming. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, to be absent from the body for the believers to be present with whom? 
the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5.8. There is no intermediate purgatory whereby you have your sins judged and paid for over time in the flames of torment before entering heaven. There is no soul sleep where you're sort of stuck in limbo waiting until a further summons. There's no waiting in the grave uh, for this. The body waits as it were in the grave asleep, but the spirit immediately goes to be with the Lord. And here we see them clothed in some intermediate body. Why? Because they're wearing a robe and they've got hands to hold palm branches. It takes a body to do that. They have come from earth from this period of time known as the great tribulation. Second question. Well, more specifically, just who are these people? Well, notice as John specifically identifies them back up in verse 9, the middle part, as coming from every nation. That word is ethnos. Refers to an ethnic body of people united by culture, common tradition. They're also from every tribe. This refers to the same family uh, line. This could be translated clan that will be there. These saints are also from, he goes on, from every peoples, all the races. The redeemed are also finally from every tongue, language. The word is glossat, gives us our word glossary. Uh, This is a word that refers to every group of people distinguished by a language, which is an amazing implication. This is a a wonderful revelation of the grace of God and the expansion of the gospel on into God. The tribulation period. While all these terrible things are happening on the earth as the seals are opened and the scroll unrolled and the wrath of God poured out, millions of people are crying out. We learned last Lord's Day to to be hidden by the rocks, to be hidden from him who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb, Revelation 6.16. Literally, hide me from God. However, from this scene, we learn that millions of them are praying at the same time in faith to receive the Lamb of God as their own Savior. And God could have easily said, and you might even expect it, sorry, too late. No way. I've had enough. No more grace. No more mercy. No more saving grace. From from here on out, it's wrath and judgment alone. Not so. For John is standing here watching as millions Presently, pour into the royal court of Almighty God who just recently died in this eschatological period of wrath. In fact, John even implies surprise as he writes the opening line, verse 9, after these things, I looked and behold. I love that. I looked and, wow, would you look at that? Behold. Has that... That nuance of perhaps even surprise. Would you look at this? Which leads me to another question. Maybe he was wondering it too. Why are so many people saved during the tribulation? It's amazing to see so many people saved in our generation, isn't it? Especially in those countries that are suffering the persecution of believers. To know there are thousands literally every day just in China alone who are demonstrating faith and exercising it in Christ alone. Our media ministry, Wisdom for the Heart, I've learned and was shown some data not too long ago from our internet site that that shows that now between eight and 10,000 people download a sermon podcast every week. 
And it's startling to me from 25, 30 different, different countries in a week's time. I read through the list of Vietnam, Japan, the Arab Emirates states, Kazakhstan, France, the Philippines, and on and on and on. We don't know who they are, by the way. They've just logged on, downloaded a free uh, resource, but we do have this sense that the gospel is going to places we never, ever dreamed. Perhaps some of them are hearing the gospel, and should the rapture occur, they will believe and be part of this company. I have always been personally challenged by J. Vernon McGee's personal desire with his radio program. Any of you know J. Vernon McGee? May I say to you, that's a lot of people. Wow. Remember him? That Bible bus went through the whole Bible in five years. His bus moves a lot faster than mine. Uh, I'm on a tortoise, right? But his desire was that through the Bible, radio would continue on the air into and through the tribulation so that he could be part of this harvest and used money to endow it. And there are millions of dollars now with that ministry endowed to see that it stays on the radio. What a wonderful goal. But can you imagine 144,000 spirit-empowered Evangelists, missionaries, preachers, teachers who are using every possible technology available to get the gospel around the world and the vast harvest that's going to come about. This, is, this here is just a portion of, of that harvest. And now they're before the throne of God. But still now, why so many believing here? Well, think of it this way. Have you ever been on a, a plane and that flight attendant got up? And what did you do? You, if you're me, you ignored her. She got up, she talked about the seatbelt and do this. And I have out of the corner of my eye, yes, and the mask drops down. You know, give your child a breath in, in yourself. And, and, your, and your cushion is, is, you know, designed to be a flotation device, which makes sense because it is not designed for comfort. <laughs> and I'm going to watch her go through that presentation and I'm going to look around and I'm going to see people reading newspapers and talking. And uh, they're not listening. Why? Because most people don't believe the plane's going to go down. And all the rest of the people don't want to think, it, think about it going down. So if maybe if we ignore her, we won't have to think about it. There really isn't a creator God who is a God of wrath who will judge the world. Why bother with the instruction card called Revelation? And in fact, we're just not going to think about it. But then, flaming asteroids begin to streak toward Earth. And Earth begins to shake. And the sun goes dark and the moon turns blood red. Diseases have already turned into epidemics and people are dying everywhere and famine is sweeping across the world and and everybody you know seems to be dying. Where's that instruction card? I'm ready now. The plane's going down. See, people will no longer be casual about God and the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. He will not be an ignored sovereign anymore. And listen, people by the millions will either cry out to hide from him or there will be millions who will cry out to be hid 
in him. And God, in his unbelievable grace, will allow millions to turn to his word, read the instructions, and before they die, either in the devastation hitting planet Earth or as martyrs for having believed, they will pour into the gates of heaven. He said, well, that doesn't seem right. I mean, we believe now we get eternal life. We have to struggle with our race, with God and the faith. And these people catch the last flight. And they receive the same gift of everlasting life as we do. You remember the parable in Matthew 20 where the Lord talked about the generous landowner. He hired workers at the very early hours of the day. And he hired workers in the middle of the day. And he hired workers as the day was coming to an end. And he paid them all the same. So that's an illustration of the generosity of God who doesn't offer eternal life with a disclaimer. Sorry, you came late. An addendum, you came halfway. Or a penalty, you caught the last flight. No, it's the same benefit for all. And these are rejoicing with unmitigated joy. Let me make several observations of these believers from this scene First, would you notice what they're wearing? Verse 9 informs us that they are wearing white robes. White robes stand for purity. These people have been forgiven their scarlet stained lives, have been washed white as wool, the prophet said. They're pictured now with white robes representing their purity. White robes also represent victory. The Roman generals would would wear white clothing as they rode back into the capital city of their empire following victory in some battle. This was the color of conquerors. Not the soiled, mud-caked clothing of armies who now lay defeated in the dirt. No, this is the color of the clothing of victories. And mark this, ladies and gentlemen, the scene that we're given here. These people do not arrive in the presence of God weary, beaten, Worn out, discouraged. Oh no, they are victorious. They may have been cut down by an executioner. But they here are actually the victor. They have through Christ conquered death and now stand awaiting the final resurrection of the body with their spirit already rejoicing with God in this temporary body. They are singing praise to God. Down in verse 14, John adds the detail. They have washed their robes, making them white in the blood of the Lamb. The idea of making something white by washing it in blood seems paradoxical to us, doesn't it? In fact, even a little shocking. But not to those with an Old Testament background. To them, such washing denoted spiritual purity through the sacrificial shedding of blood of an innocent lamb. Keep in mind as well that when we think of shedding blood, we think immediately of death, the Jewish people immediately thought of life. The life is in the blood. Genesis chapter 9 verse 4. So when the New Testament speaks about the blood of Jesus Christ, it means not only his his bloodletting on the cross and his death, it also refers to his life of perfection so that he could be the lamb perfected as the final paschal Passover lamb. 
The blood of Christ stands for everything, his life and death and resurrection. You could expand this text in, in your understanding to be this. These saints have washed their garments white. That is, they've become pure and victorious because they've washed them in the totality of Jesus Christ, both in the shedding of his blood as the sinless lamb of God, but also in the perfection of his deity and life as God the Son who lived and died and lives yet again and forevermore. So here they stand in their pure garments representing the life of Jesus Christ, his bloodshed, his death and resurrection. And they, in him, are victorious over death and sin and Satan. Observation number two, would you notice not only what they're wearing, but what they're holding? At the end of verse nine, we're told they're holding palm branches in their hands. They're waving palm branches before the throne of God. You remember, this is what happened when Jesus Christ rode on that immediately tamed, unbroken colt. He rode into the city of Jerusalem as the people took palm branches and and went out and waved them at Christ as he entered the city. And that created an incredible stir. Why? Because waving palm branches before someone was an activity reserved for royalty. You only did this for kings in that culture. So the Jewish people in Jerusalem that they were recognizing, the one they believed would establish his messianic kingdom, And his right to rule over them. They were declaring to everyone their king had come. That's why they shouted, by the way, in John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 13. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Here comes the king, is what they were saying. Of course, they would later reject him. And he, according to divine plan, would suffer As the Passover lamb. But now here. But now here. We have again the appearance. Of palm branches. And they're being waved. This time untold millions are waving palm branches. Before the throne of God the father. And his son the lamb. Observation number three. Notice what they're saying. Verse 10. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is all about him. First, they praise him for his great salvation. Salvation belongs to our God. It's his doing. It's his offering. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the what? Gift of God. Not of works. Anything you do besides simply receive is a work. Do you hear anyone boasting of their deeds in this scene? Let me tell you about my baptism. Let me tell you how long I've been going to Sunday school. Let me tell you where I was a member of, of this or that church. No, not here. Do you see anybody before this throne admiring their own effort and their own hand and their own works to get in? Not a chance. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Hebrews 2 verse 3. This salvation of God is, is what they praise Because it is all of God. He is the only way in. He is the only way out. He is the only way up. 
God alone created the plan of salvation. God alone offers the gift of salvation. God alone receives the praise for his great salvation. No wonder this is their theme. They praise him for his great salvation. They secondly praise him for his global sovereignty. Salvation to our God who sits upon the throne. It would be easy to doubt he was sovereign then. Maybe as they died horrific deaths. But they clung to their faith. There's no doubting it now. There's no debating it here. God alone sits upon the throne of the heavens and he alone rules the universe as sovereign. Third, they not only praise him for his great salvation and glorious sovereignty, but for his gracious sacrifice. Salvation to our God who sits upon the throne and unto whom? The Lamb. And there he stands. Pictured as in chapter 5, bearing in his glorified body the wounds of crucifixion. Demonstrated in his glorified body to Thomas. And the others showing him the nail prints and hands and feet and spear wound in, in his side. He retained those to be forever a demonstration of his great gracious sacrifice. Perhaps even cuts on his forehead from the makeshift crown of thorns whereby the human race mocked his claim to divine royalty. And, and here he stands. And millions upon millions of the redeemed shout over and over again salvation to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation belongs to our God and who sits upon the throne and to our Lamb. It's such a moving sight. It, it is filled with, with such wonder that the angels are just sort of swept up in it. And, and they fall down before the throne. Look at verse 11. And all the angels were standing around the throne and, and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne of God and, and worshipped him. They just sort of get swept up and, they, and they're saying, Amen. They just get caught up in it. That they have to add their testimony of worship. And they shout, Amen. These angels are Baptist angels, evidently. This is the only doxology in the Bible, by the way, that both begins and ends with the word amen. Amen means simply it is the truth. We've got to tell you it's the truth. What they just said about their salvation is the truth. And then they add the sevenfold statement as they sort of read from the resume of the character of God. They chant, he is worthy of blessing Eulogia. We get our word eulogy from this. It means to speak well of someone. Now we usually reserve a eulogy uh, for someone after they've died. Oftentimes eulogies are, are nothing more than carefully worded fibs. But not this eulogy. The well-speaking offered to the living God. He is worthy of whatever you can think of saying good about him. He's worthy of it. He's worthy of doxa. This gives us our word doxology. It's a reference to the glory derived from a good reputation. He's worthy third of of all Sophia, wisdom, which is embodied in our God. He's worthy of Eucharistia. Gives us our word Eucharist, 
Gratitude and thanksgiving. He's worthy of it all. He is worthy of, of temei. The word is great esteem. He is worthy of dunamis. Gives us our word dynamic or dynamite. It's a reference to power to act independently of anyone but his triune counsel. He can do whatever he wants to do. And whatever he does is right. I'm glad that he is not powerless, but he is all-powerful, and he will always do what is right, and he will one day make all things new. He is worthy, number seven, of iskus, that is strength throughout history. It's part of his divine resume of attributes. His will is accomplished by his divine omnipotence. And for how long? From what they say, is God worthy of this for a month, a year, or even a century? No, John writes, forever and ever, forever and ever, he is worthy. It's the truth. Amen. Now, at this point, an interesting conversation has begun between John and a believer, an elder, who I've explained earlier, I believe, represents the church raptured to heaven prior to this tribulation. This elder is emphasizing to John the importance of recognizing who these white-robed saints are. He asks John, look at verse 13. Who are they and where have they come from? And, and John, you know, he, he says, verse 14, I said to him, my Lord, you know. In other words, I don't know who they are. Uh, you know who they are. When he says, my Lord... He is not ascribing deity to this man. This is simply a, a polite way of addressing someone. It's the word sir. It's the way of polite addressing to someone. And people from the south understand it. We understand this language. We say yes sir. No sir. Yes ma'am. No ma'am. Right? People from the north. They say yep. Yep. Nope. Yep. Yep. What are you driving horses? Yep. Yep. How many of you are from the north? I speak to an audience of transplanted northerners. How many of you are glad you're in the south? Are you glad you're here? Yep, yep, yep. yep. The things I suffer. Sir, with great respect, you know the answer. The elder knew the answer. But this was his way of opening the conversation up to clarify for John and and us, that these were not members of the church. John would have known that. Already raptured. These are believers who've been saved and now died sometime during the tribulation. And they are now enjoying the presence of God. There are joys of heaven seen here in these remaining verses of this chapter. And I'll put them in a twofold outline. Number one, they are sheltered by their sovereign. This is one of the joys of heaven, verse 15. And he, for this reason, they're before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They are safe, forever secure. They were before, but they feel it now. Sheltered by the sovereign. Secondly, they are satisfied by their shepherd. Verse 16, they will hunger no longer, nor thirst 
any more, nor will the sun be down on them, nor any heat. This verse, many believe, is a reference to the fourth bowl, which is going to be poured out, which is excruciating heat, and, and the sunlight, which is magnified, perhaps a reference to those who believe and are persecuted by being thrown out into the sun without water to drink. We don't know. We do know this. There's no longer any deprivation. There's no longer any suffering. And verse 17 says, Why? For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. This is the prayer of David, isn't it? We've often uttered it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not what? I shall not want. That means because the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything I need. For those who do not have him as their shepherd, they're always wanting. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Literally makes it possible for me to lie down in green pastures. A sheep will not lie down unless they're free of fear, free from hunger. He makes it possible for me to rest. Why? He feeds me all that I need. And I have no fear. The great psalm, of course, ends by saying, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This was his prayer, and this is their experience. Listen, dear friend, if you want him to be your shepherd over there, you must have him as your shepherd over here. For those who follow the shepherd on earth, they will one day be shepherded by him. In eternity. John's vision ends in verse 17 with a promise that God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Now, many have taken this to mean that nobody will ever cry in heaven. I don't believe that. I believe this is taking that phrase out of context. This is in reference to great suffering and hardship, tears shed by humans enduring the pain and the suffering of the human condition. I believe there will indeed be no more tears of hardship and suffering and loss and pain in heaven. But have you ever cried tears of joy? Have you ever sung a hymn or chorus and and tears filled your eyes? Have you ever thanked the Lord in prayer for his goodness and tears Trickle down your cheeks. Tears are God created, and the ability to do so is God created. Not necessarily the result of the fall or a sinful human nature. It is a God created avenue for an emotional response, and I believe heaven will be a place of great emotion. Joyful tears by believers, perhaps moved at the sight of the Lamb, thrilled with wonder that, that we are at his throne. We will shed, I believe, tears of gratitude through purified, perfected, glorified, God-pleasing, joyful emotion. I believe that's part of heaven. We'll get to more of heaven as we move to the latter part of Revelation. We're getting there. Remember, we're riding a tortoise, not a bus. By the way, as we wrap it up today, I mentioned trees. You know, it occurred to me here as I read this. And study this, that if millions of people in this scene in heaven have palm branches, imagine how many millions of palm trees there will be in heaven to supply them. In fact, it just might be the signature tree 
in the capital city. Now, I'm out on a limb here, no pun intended, okay, but it just might be. It's interesting, you study the history of Israel and you discover the date palm was the symbol of this nation's prosperity. Coins were minted with the palm and the vine. In fact, when Titus, the Roman general, destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70, he minted in his mockery a medal showing a Jewish a man sitting under a palm tree indicating he was now the slave of Rome. I wonder. I can't be sure, but I just wonder. If this is one more interesting twist as the royalty of Christ will be seen reigning in Jerusalem and the prosperity of of ethnic returned, uh, revived Israel, so to speak, is symbolized here, resting no longer as slaves of anybody but slaves of God. What we do know is that they're waving millions upon millions of palm branches. And I do know this, there's no need to fear death. There's no need to spend a fortune trying to hold back the inevitable. Yes, take care of yourself as best you can so that you can make a contribution to your Lord and your family and your spiritual family until he takes you home. But clear up your perspective. We stay too riveted on earth. Look here at the revelation of Jesus Christ and millions in heaven, which in this scene is a scene of believers exploding with joy. I close with the words of a 19th century American pastor who wrote, I'm standing on the seashore. A ship at my side spreads her white sails to the morning breeze and starts for the blue ocean. She's an object of beauty and strength, and I stand and I watch her until at length she hangs like a speck of white cloud just where the sea and the sky come together to mingle. And then I hear someone say, There she's gone. Gone? Where? Gone from my sight, that's all. She is just as large and massed and whole as she was when she left my side. Just as able to bear her load of living freight to the place of destination, her diminished size is not not in her, it's in me. And just at the moment when someone at my side says, There, she's gone. There are other eyes watching her and there are other voices that take up the glad shout, here she comes. I love that thought. She's gone. She's arrived. There they go. No, here they come. Tears of sorrow here. Tears of great joy over there. And it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face. All sorrow will forever erase. So bravely run the race.
till we see Christ. Amen? Father, thank you for insight into that land. Literal, glorious, unending place where we with those perfected, glorified, will one day stand and sing to you, our great God, for your great salvation. And unto you, Lord, the Lamb for sinners slain.